The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Uh, pardon me, Mrs. Millett? Yes. I'm the American Assistant Vice Consul here. Uh, my name is Ferguson. My Vice Consul sent me here especially to see you. Your Vice Consul? Yes. Don't we have a Consul in Trieste? Oh, yes, indeed we have. But your Vice Consul sent you along. Well, the Consul is very busy right now with all these invasion rumors. What invasion rumors? Well, it's about that I wanted to see you, Mrs. Millett. Your uh, visit to the Queen Mother of Yugoslavia must be cancelled, I'm afraid. Cancelled? Must be cancelled? What do you say? Just that, I'm afraid. And why? Above all, why must it be cancelled by the American Assistant Vice Consul at Trieste? Well, Mrs. Millen, it's this way. We live, I presume, in a free country. Hardly call Mussolini's Italy a free country, Mrs. Millard. I was referring to the United States, and I assume that Mr. Roosevelt has not yet declared himself chief commissar, nor has he yet, I imagine, succeeded in plunging our country into this futile European war. Well, you see, we've been in touch with our embassy in Belgrade. There's been a coup d'etat. A communist revolution? No. They've made the 18-year-old Prince Peter king. Peter, oh, that sweet boy. So he's king now. I think you met him once with me in Paris. No, I don't think I did. No, but possibly not. The threat of invasion is very real, Mrs. Millet, and I must. My dear young man, only the other day, His Excellency, the German ambassador in Rome, assured me that Herr Hitler had no more territorial claims in Europe. But he's reported to be massing troops along the Yugoslav border. Be that as it may. We are commanded to be at the Royal Palace in Belgrade at 4 p.m. next Thursday. And that is exactly where we are going to be at that exact time. Well, thank you very much, Mr. for bringing us the news. Lunch, Hortense. Please, stop her if you can. Listen, even if the worst happens, we're neutrals. So we're Belgium, Holland, Denmark, and Norway. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 15th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Today on the show is part two of our Remembrance Day commemoration. We're joined again by Salim Mansour. Welcome again, Salim. Pleasure. Thank you. Let us once again remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right social media links and, of course, all of our archive broadcasts. Well, last week on the show, we discussed at some length the causes of the First World War, the Great War, and why Canada got involved, and the war got involved. Now, if somebody were to ask me why Canada was involved in the Second World War, of course, my direct answer would be because Germany invaded Poland which would sound absolutely silly to somebody who doesn't really know history and the alliances at the time. And maybe it is silly, but the real reasons run very deep. And while the reasons for the First World War were much along the lines of an inbred family squabble, 
<laughs> and alliances and trade and empires and imperialism. The Second World War, the age of nation states, is a lot different. Can you explain to us, Salim, the reasons for the Second World War? In a nutshell. <laughs> In two minutes or less. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we have to leave so much out to explain what... I'm kidding. I take uh, as much uh, time I, as you I, I, I understand. But if we recall from our discussion last week, I pointed out that World War II was the epilogue of World War I, the Great War. So when the Great War ended in 1918, it was an armistice. It is very interesting. Germany was not defeated. There was no enemy soldier, that means uh, foreign soldiers on German soil. In fact, it was just the opposite. German army was still uh, on French soil and on Russian soil. The Germans had turned towards Russia and then the Russian Revolution erupted in October of 1917. It's called the November uh, Revolution. There was two phases of it. There was first the February Revolution of 1917, which was led by the Mensheviks, and then the Bolsheviks, which was under Lenin, took power in October of 1917. And immediately, Lenin and Trotsky, they were the two leading members of the Bolshevik party, sued for peace with, with Germany. That was the Brest-Litovsk Pact, uh, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So German soldiers were on Russian soil. I mean, there's a lot of uh, discussion in history about how Lenin was a German agent. He took the train. He was sent on a train to Russia by the Germans. And there he then provoked the Bolshevik Revolution. So anyhow, when the war in 1918 ends, Germany sues for peace, but German army is still occupying or is sitting on non-German lands. So it's an armistice. And then the negotiation of the war, or of, of, of what follows, there's the Treaty of Versailles, where the end of the war was negotiated by the winning side, that is the British, the French. The Americans had by that time entered the war. America entered in 1917, and that was what tipped the balance against the German and the Austro-Hungarians in that war. And the Treaty of Versailles laid down the condition, and one of the conditions was which the French insisted upon was a reparation that Germany would have to pay to France for all the price of World War One. The reparation was huge. And this is what simmered in German politics over the next little while, through the 1920s. And as the German economy, along with the rest of the world economy, following World War I, entered into a sort of a recession and then a depression. And we entered the Depression Age. And so that led to massive dislocation of population of workers, of people, unemployment, inflation. So it was an explosive situation in terms of the failing economy and what it meant for the common people, apart from already the losses that had taken place. So there was a dark shadow across Europe that then spread around the world. Depression affected America. Depression affected the colonies. Depression affected Canada. Those were the Depression years. 
and depression politics that came about. And so if you want to examine and understand, and we don't have the time here, so let's just leave it at that, that is the failing economies, and then the Russian Revolution that was threatening the dominant existing system, which is capitalism and empire, or what remained of the empire. Remember, in the last segment or last show, we had talked about six empires. By the time armistice was signed, the war ended. All that was left of the six empires were just two empires, and they were shrinking, the British and the French. The German empire had collapsed. The German territories were taken over by what was found, created at the Treaty of Warsaw, the League of Nations, and those were given as mandates to the British and the French. The Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed in Europe, and that's the beginning of the European nationalism, the coming together of Hungary and you know Yugoslavia and other states, Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, Romania. Uh, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And so all of the Middle East, which the British took over, British and the French took over, from the eastern Mediterranean and Egypt all the way into the Persian Gulf, and these were carved up nation-state. And then, of course, the collapse of the Russian Empire and the Bolshevik Revolution. So there was this collapse of the empire, there was this massive dislocation of population, there was a collapse of the existing economic system, and then the heavy reparation that was put upon the Germans, but the Germans could not live up to it. In fact, John Maynard Keynes wrote the book on this matter, The Economic Consequences of World War I, and Germany, that had basically started the war, was now they were going to pay for the war, and, they, and, and the last ounce of blood was going. And it is in the mix of that you have the rise, both of the communists in Germany trying to seek power, and the rise of what would become the National Socialists, or in short, the Nazis, the fascists. And Italy, it was the rise of Mussolini. And each of these groups then basically appeal to people in their societies on the basis of their own arguments of why the situation was so desperate. In the case of Germany, the Nazis, with the rise of Hitler, was about the famous stab in the back. Who had stabbed us in the back? And, and the economy. And among the stab in the back was the Jews had stabbed them in the back, the French had stabbed them in the back, the German army had never been defeated, the German army remained in control, and yet Germany had lost. Hitler was a member of the German army. He was a low, low soldier, a corporal, but he had fought in the World War I. And so all of this is brewing. It is a witch's brew out of which arises subsequently in the 1930s what came to be known as the Third Reich, yes. the coming to power of the Nazi party in Germany, the seizure of power by Mussolini, in the case of Russia, the end of the idea that the Bolshevik Revolution is part of an internationalist movement, the Workers' Party, World Revolution, and Stalin taking over, he had Trotsky removed, eventually killed, 
and the whole notion of socialism in one country. Socialism in one country in Russia, socialism as a way out for the German economy, you know, to nationalize it, you know, again, appeal to the workers. Socialism in Britain with the Fabians, the rise of welfare state and, and so on. Socialism in, in France. So socialism then became, in a sense, an economic sort of remedy for a failing economy. You nationalize the economy, you appeal to the workers, you're going to now create a welfare state, and then you wrap it up in a sort of an appeal, a mythological appeal to some higher identity. In the case of Germany with the Nazis, it was to the Aryan superiority and the necessity for finding space for the Aryan superiority to create their Aryan state, which will come at the expense of all the untermenschen, mm. the lower classes. In the Sudetenland, in this case, they annexed the very first right. thing. And, and, yes. and, and you eliminate them, you destroy them. You begin with the Jews in the Germany, yes. and, and then you know everybody else. And so Lebensraum, looking to the east, that is, to Russia, you know, and that will become the faithful enemy of the German. So this is the witch's brew out of which is the eruption, you know, 20 years after uh, World War One ended, the eruption of World War II. So World War One, essentially, as you say, was called an armistice. It was simply a, a cessation of hostilities. It yeah. was only a pause. It was a pause. When I think about it now, that's why I started reporting for the Balloon Observer Corps to rise above the war above the bullets and the stink, the terrible, useless waste of it all. That war is over. And the documents you found did enable the British to stop the new offensive? A single battle averted in a war that continued for two more years and cost hundreds of thousands of more lives. And I survived. We all played a part in that war, Malone. We all survived. Well, you're just sitting there like a lump. What's your story? I'm alone. Hey, we have a word, please, on the balcony. I think we should talk. I'd like to tell you what I did in the war to end all wars. began between Germany and France on August 3rd, 1914. Five weeks later, the German army had smashed its way to within 18 miles of Paris. There, the battered French miraculously rallied their forces at the Marne River, and in a series of unexpected counterattacks, drove the Germans back. The front was stabilized, and shortly afterwards developed into a continuous line of heavily fortified trenches zigzagging their way 500 miles from the English Channel to the Swiss frontier. By 1916, after two grisly years of trench warfare, the battle lines had changed very little. Successful attacks were measured in hundreds of yards and paid for in lives by hundreds of thousands. It's interesting, Salim, 
you know, I knew this as a fact, but when you just brought it to our attention that the end of the First World War didn't really end with the quote-unquote defeat of Germany and the common sense of understanding what that meant. And it seems to me, was that part of the reason that reparation payments were expected from Germany because they weren't totally defeated? Are reparation payments after wars a common thing, or was that something that's very unique to this situation? Well, it was a common thing going back into history. The losing side paid to the victor, and the victor squeezed whatever the victor could squeeze from the losing side. I but, mean, but, but once you've lost, you're, you're part of the group that took you over, aren't you, in, in a sense? There's, what do you pay back and to who? I mean, well, like, the reparation was to the, the Allied powers. Yes, because Germany was still a separate thing and hadn't really, quote-unquote, been taken over by them. Yeah, right. So, I mean, the, the anomaly or the paradox of the way World War I ended was armistice. It yes. was a truce. Right. That means everyone laid down the guns. And the guns, as it says, you know, Eric Mario remarks book, All Quiet on the Western Front, the gun stopped firing at that hour on that day and that year 1918 so it was an armistice it was a truce then the conditions were laid out for that truce that would follow it was the upheaval inside germany that followed uh, when the truce was brought about one of the upheaval led to or among the upheaval led to was the removal of kaiser willem the emperor it was the end of monarchy in Germany. In a sense, Germany became a sort of a republic. The Weimar Republic, it was the brief space of a democratic experiment. The chancellor became the war hero of Germany, Hindenburg, Field Marshal Hindenburg, you know. It was the German army and the German leaders of the army who, in a sense, held the center of Germany in this Weimar Republic. And parties proliferated. There was then the run of the political parties to win uh, political power to go into the assembly, the Reichstag. And this is where the eventual head-on collision took place between the communists on the one side and the National Socialist Workers' Party. You see the name itself, the National Socialist Workers' Party, which would be the Nazis, you know. So both elements went into a head-on collision. In retrospect, we can now see the picture, ironically, the German aristocracy and what remained of the German aristocracy, the German capitalists, the great industrial houses like the Krupps, the Siemens. You know, Germany was the leading industrial power when World War I began. And so these great giant industries were there. These were capitalist industries. They made the bet that by supporting the German National Socialist Workers' Party, they would contain the communists. The Bolshevik Revolution had broken out in Russia, and that was threatening the rest of Europe. And so the German communists, which were the oldest communist party in Europe, by the way, Marx was a German. The first working-class movement, the first international, was founded in Germany. 
So this collision takes place and the industrialists, the aristocrats, the landowners, they support, they give money to, they use or they want to use the Nazis you might almost say the scumbags of the Nazis, the people on the street without jobs and so on, the gangs, the thugs, the hooligans, uh, they want to use them as the raw weapon, the manpower to contain and defeat the communists. And the communists were defeated. They were bloodshed. That famous woman, uh, communist woman, writer, who was subsequently glorified, Rosa Luxemburg, was brutally killed in one of the uprisings in Berlin. So you have this situation, but what happened? By taking choices, they had fed the party that now would become a monster. It would rise up. In the election of 1932, the German National Socialist Workers' Party, with Hitler as the leader, won the plurality of the vote to the surprise of everybody else to the surprise of the Socialist Party, not the Communist, the Socialist Party, which still exists in Germany, was the largest working-class party in Europe. To their surprise, and to the surprise of the Catholic League, to the surprise of the Liberals, the German Workers' Party, the National Socialist Workers' Party, won the plurality of the vote, and Hitler became the Chancellor. I find it interesting and perhaps surprising that today we see the flag of the German communists still being flown on the streets of the United States. They call themselves Antifa. And it is the flag of the German communists of that era. Mm -hmm. And uh, it it seems like this, this war, this great war that started in 1914, continues to this day the remnants is still the tentacles are still being felt to this day in the streets of portland with antifa going around with their the german ide- anti-fascist flags all of these <laughs> ideas germinated in europe right in the last show that we talked about the, the beginning of the end of the age of europe you see it is also the end of the age of queen victoria 19th century was the age of Victoria. She was born in 1818-1819, if I remember correctly, about the same time as Marx was born. A few years earlier, Darwin was born. A few decades later, Freud was born. This is the age of Europe, the ideas, you see, that came. So with Marx, the ideas of socialism, of communism, of workers party, you know, with Darwin, the ideas of evolution, and one of the ideas of evolution that would come to circulate later on would be the survival of the fittest, and you have to be fit to survive, you know, the the power belongs to the strong, and that would take on a whole coloration with the National Socialist Workers' Party. This was the age of expansion. This was the age of uh, industrialization. But here in a capsule, I would say, all of these, like seeds, were spread around the world. World War I was the beginning of the self-destruction. I mean, it was Toyn- uh, Arnold Toynbee, the great British historian who would later on write about not only the World War I, World War II, but he would put together world history and his study of history. He made a phenomenal observation that civilizations 
do not die. They commit suicide. <laughs> World War I was a collective suicide of Europe. But it did not end there. It did not, I mean, they, they committed suicide, but there was still enough, you might say, breath in their lungs <laughs> that it carried on into World War II. You see, World War II was a complete destruction of Europe because two other great powers arose on the two sides of Europe. It, it was the rise of the United States. So 19th century ended with World War I, and World War II was the epilogue, and Europe ended. Europe was divided. Europe was smashed. Rise of America. By the way, Rise of America was also the rise of Canada. Wilfred Laurier had spoken about at the beginning of 20th century. You know, I mean, this is a term yeah, he had used, whatever. Canada, sure, yeah. that, 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 <laughs> that the 19th century had been America's century. The 20th century will be Canada's century. Nonsense, but, you know, yeah. we came on our own. Canada became, you know, we, we are a G7 country. We are a NATO country. We are, you know, Canada became a prominent. But it is the rise of America on the one side. It was the rise of Soviet Union that went right into the half of Europe. But there are others, because with the World War II, it was the final nail in the coffin of the age of Europe. The European powers finished, because at World War I, there were still two empires left. At the end of World War II, the last of the two empires then ended. You know, it just took a matter of time. The British Empire came to an end, and the French Empire came to an end. The British Empire came to an end with Britain withdrawing, first from India in 1947, and then subsequently by stages from the Middle East and from Africa, giving independence to all of these states that emerged, starting with India, but then all of Africa, the Middle East, as independent nation-states. The French Empire ended in the battlefield of Vietnam, Dien Bien Phu, where the communists not Vietnamese, destroyed the French army in 1954. And then the Americans stepped in. That was the Cold War logic. So, you know, that's a whole different thing. But the age of Europe was over. You know, that was the end. I think it's and fitting. we entered into the modern age of nation states around the world. I think it's fitting that the modern Second World War, and we talked about the technology differences in the First World War to, to previous wars, the, the modern Second World War and subsequent wars is commemorated on November 11th, uh, 11th which of course is the, the day of the armistice for the First World War, because really the First World War did not end, and I would even submit today its ramifications are still being felt and may even, who knows, in the future, have another war because of the First World War. So I think it's very fitting, and we all, all we have to do is to learn the lessons of both wars before we move on. For the people who came of age, who fought in the Second World War, but the leaders, the leaders on both the Allied side and on the Axis side, on Russian side and on the Japanese side, the leaders were all people who had come away during World War I or who had been in a leadership role, just as was Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill became the Prime Minister of Britain in the United States, Roosevelt in, in, in Russia. It was Stalin and so on and so forth. The lesson of World War I was it wasn't going to be an armistice. It would have to be a total, unconditional surrender. It would be a defeat. 
the World War II was a complete defeat. Germany was destroyed. It was an unconditional surrender of the German army. Hitler blew himself up in the bunkers in Berlin. In the case of Japan, it was, again, a total surrender in sense a destruction. Maybe that's it a lesson was, that we have to learn from World War going, is that, yes, right. you have to have a complete unconditional surrender unconditional to be able to move on. Precisely. And, and, and so the Japanese war ended with the glimpse of the age that we entered during Second World War, that is the nuclear age, with the two atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You wouldn't mind hitting the war memorial appeal, would you? I feel a bit embarrassed. I wasn't wounded. I wasn't even allowed to fight. They should ask a man like General McKee or Johnny Raymond, someone who did that bit. You're their traditional leader, and they'd like you to pray with them in mourning and in gratitude. But I should be praying in the back row, not the front. That's all. Please don't think us too forward. You have no need to worry. I'm happy to play my part. But we don't know yet where we want the memorial to be, my lord. So? Well, if you're to give us a piece of land, you better know where it is before you agree. I'm sure I will agree. But is that why you're here, to ask for a piece of land as the site for this thing? That's why we're here to see you, my lord. But we'd also like to offer the position of chairman of our committee to... I'll take over now. You were saying? We'd like Mr Carson to be chairman of our committee. But surely his lordship... No, Carson. They don't want me. They want you. I wouldn't put it like that, my lord. But Mr Carson knew more of the young men that died than you did. Yes, I suppose you're right. Well, he knew them better. That's it. And he's a considerable figure in the village. Tea, please. Carson, what do you say? I am honoured by the invitation, uh, but I shall have to think about it. Of course you will, but please don't take too long. Can you put my milk in first, if that's for me? I'm not convinced these memorials are a good idea, but I suppose that's a different issue. Why not? When they give people a focus for their sorrow? And a reminder of the sacrifices that were made? If it were a memorial service, then I might agree. But a stone edifice in the centre of the green to remind us forever of death and a pointless war. What's the good of that? To say nothing of the waste of money. Forgive me, but you are talking nonsense. Forgive me, but I suppose she's allowed an opinion. She is not allowed that opinion, not in this house. I think what she means is... She is here as your friend, so of course you must defend her. But was the war worth fighting? What did it achieve beyond the Russian Revolution, which you hate? Millions of men dead and no more justice than there was before. You are wrong, both of you. But we must strive to keep things light. It's a pity they didn't want you on their committee. You put up a stout defence of their intentions. They do want his lordship on the committee. Forgive me, my lord. I'd have told you later, but they held a meeting this afternoon and they would like you as their patron. Oh, how nice. I dare say that was always their plan. I dare say it was, your ladyship. I should be glad to accept. Now, if you can all put your swords away, perhaps we can finish our dinner in a civilised manner. But I admire it when young people stand up for their principles. Principles are like prayers. 
Noble, of course. But awkward at a party. You're listening to Just Right Broadcasting Around the World and Online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. Earlier on in the show, we were talking about the rise of nationalism and socialism as a fallout from the First World War, imperialist war. And I find it, I don't know, ironic or perhaps at least worthy of interest that while socialism, the the Nazi party was a nationalist socialist party. Hitler's party was nationalist socialist. Workers' party. hmm? Nationalist, Nationalist Socialist Workers' Party. Yes, German Workers' Party, yes. But we've, we've kept the socialism part throughout the world. All of the world this day is socialist. The same socialism espoused by, in the Weimar Republic and, and espoused by Hitler and espoused by Stalin, that the, the individual is subservient to the, to the will of the state. We've kept that element of Nazism, and we've rejected for some reason the nationalism part. Nationalism has become a pejorative. It is a nasty word. If you say that you're a nationalist, all of a sudden there are images of Hitler. While if you say you're a socialist, boy, that's that's cool these days. Not socialism is cool, even though Hitler was a socialist. But Nazism is um, all of a sudden you're going to annex the Sudetenland if you're a nationalist. And Donald Trump has just recently come out and said that he's a nationalist, but for different reasons, I think, and you can perhaps expand on this, Salim, than than people are thinking. He's he's saying he's a nationalist because he believes in the sovereignty of a nation, he believes in the the integrity of a border, and he believes in jurisdiction. All very reasonable things. And for that reason, I would say that I believe in the nation-state as well, making me a nationalist. It doesn't make me a Nazi blanking out the socialism part of that term, Nazism. Your thoughts on why nationalism becomes a pejorative, uh, Sabine? My my thoughts are very large, but to compress it together, (laughs) uh, as a result of um, world wars, the two world wars, but in particularly the Second World War, which turned into a racial war, uh, ethnic war, I mean, uh, the destruction of European Jewry, Holocaust, the destruction of uh, the Eastern Europeans uh, by the German army under this mythology of being the superior race, Lebensraum on the other side, the destruction by the socialists in the case of Russia under Stalin, Soviet Union under Stalin, of the Ukrainians during it happened at the same time. Uh, Contemporaneously, the Ukrainian famine, it was a man-made famine that was another in a sense, the Holocaust is called Holdemar. What has happened in the post-1945 period as the world evolved, 
uh, in terms of European intellectual, Europeans trying to write about their history, Europe trying to come to explanation and make sense of it, and, and, and then by default, the North Americans, you and I sitting in North America talking about this. The word nationalism became stained by the politics and the deeds of Hitler. But the same group of writers and intellectuals, in a majority sense, did not allow the ideas of socialism to get stained by the events of Stalin's Russia and then what followed in the making of communist China soon after the uh, Second World War, the, the rise of Mao Zedong in 1949. Now, if you, again, we are all doing retrospective. 20th century is now history. We are in the 21st century. So if you look back on the 20th century, it was a century of truly great wars. Two world wars we're talking about, then the revolutions, and then the collapse of the empires and on the body politics of the empire, the emergence of the third world nation states, you know, which was again based upon nationalism. But if you look back on the 20th century, the greatest destruction, ironically, in terms of human lives and human casualty, was brought about by socialism, not by Hitler, even though Hitler is the monster. Certainly, he was a, he's a monster, but he's the monster that we only look at. You know, the intellectuals only look at this monster, that he is the cause of World War II, he's the cause of racism, racial politics, destruction of European Jewry, Holocaust, etc. We don't look at it in the same way as the vast majority of people on the destruction caused by the socialists. I mean, Russia under Stalin in the Second World War had a debt toll of somewhere in 20, 25 million as a result of the war itself. But then there were debt tolls caused by Stalin himself, the Ukrainian famine and, and the destruction within Russia of the dissidents and others. But the biggest, the largest calculated and organized destruction was in communist China. The total numbers of the debt by Mao Zedong is almost, you know, it cannot be put around in your head. Over a hundred million. Mao himself is responsible for 70 million. So the black book of socialism and communism of the 20th century, the death toll and casualty figures far exceeds 100 million. And in that sense, Hitler is simply an amateur, you might say. Yeah. <laughs> Hitler is still, you know, a schoolboy compared to Stalin and Mao Zedong. However, in the discussion, this is where the fragmentation takes place. In Europe, and those that are connected with Europe, that is North American, the word nationalism became the pejorative, as you correctly point out. It became derogatory. To be nationalist meant that you're going to be a racist. You're going to be driven by ethnic politics. You are somehow stained by what happened in Germany, right? And yet, three quarters of the world, it is a celebration of nationalism. The whole independence movement in India that stretches first half of the 20th century with Gandhi in the making of the Indian National Congress. It's a national congress. Didn't you know? they just unveil a huge statue 
to the founding of their nation state? Yeah, India is the largest nation state in the world. It is the largest functioning democracy. It's one point almost two billion people. The second largest nation state is China in that sense, a communist country. But nationalism has been the energy. It has been the idea. It has been the ideology. It has been the driving force in the making of the more modern world of nation-state. In the League of Nations, the members were basically European countries. In, in the United Nations, we have now close to 200 member states, 200 member states, and the vast majority are member states from Africa, Asia, and Latin America or South America. So, the idea that nationalism is pejorative and derogatory is to ignore three-quarter of mankind. And I think that is very selective, very selective of what is happening. So here it is. It is throwing the baby with the bathwater. Nationalism came into force in Europe long before Hitler Nationalism gave birth to France, Spain, and other states that followed, you know. So when you're trying to clean out the bathtub of nationalism, the dirty water, you drain out that which is Hitler or which is racialist. But the idea of nationalism and nation-state, there's nothing to be stained about. So, on the contrary, nation-state is the closest binding force of a people to give them a sense of who they are, their identity, their history, their working in terms of economic arrangement, and so on and so forth. The flip side of that is and was with the ideas of Marx, the appeal to a borderless world of the working class people, the proletarian. It was, the, you know, the first international. We, the workers of the world, unite. We unite against whom? We unite against the capitalists. Where are the capitalists? They are in the nation states. That's Britain. That's France. That's Germany. That's Japan. That's United States. So, today, those who are arguing for globalism and who are the globalists are the children of Marx. They are not the children of Paul Revere. <laughs> they are not the children of George Washington. So here is the paradox and the irony. We talked about in the last show of how our children in schools and colleges are no longer taught history. Here is the problem. Donald Trump is reaching back as a proud American to say I'm a nationalist, the Star Spangled Banner, uh, the national anthem, that is the 13 colonies that became the United States of America, that is George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and then Abraham Lincoln. That's what he's appealing to. And the globalists who want to run the world from United Nations or from Davos ironically, are the children of Marx and Engels and Lenin. You see, that's the irony that we have come to. Justin Trudeau and his brother Alexander Trudeau are the loyal progeny of Marx and Lenin and Che Guevara and Fidel Castro.
Perhaps literally. <laughs> have nothing to do, yeah, they have nothing to do with Wilfred Laurier and Johnny McDonald. We're stationed at Stalag 13. What? That's where we fight the war. It's our base. We operate as a sabotage and intelligence unit. Fantastic. Clever conception. From inside a prisoner of war camp. Yeah, it's fine, but tough to get life insurance. Is Clinkin on this? Are you kidding? Clink and his monocle are still fighting World War One. Good morning. Ah, oh, Mr. Ian. I hope you trust you had a good night. I don't remember, so I must have. You missed something by sleeping so late. We dropped the pot a little while ago. Oh, when I came to see, I didn't miss. Are your legs always blue? They're not blue. Oh, should be. Give me that blanket, will I you? I don't want a blanket. I want the sunshine. Oh, your teeth are chattering like a crap game. This is November, and it's winter sunshine. Thank you. Pure selfishness on my part. If you catch pneumonia, what'll happen to our romance? It'll happen to it anyway if you don't shave. I shall enjoy listening to you two, if you'll permit me. You can referee. Relationships between modern young Americans seem most peculiar to a man of my year. I give your lovemaking an assault and battery twist. Living so long in the Far East has perhaps given me a more or less oriental view of things. We were discussing Philippine economics when we were so rudely interrupted. In my own field, Miss Marlowe is kind enough to listen to me. They're going to be free in 1946, aren't they? They are, provided America doesn't insist on fighting a war with Japan. It's my opinion, however, that that contingency is going to keep the Philippines from ever being free. Won't Japan gobble them up? Well, no offense, but Japan or Canada or anybody else can have the Philippines as far as I'm concerned. It's hot in Manila. Might be even hotter before long. Hot enough to go around in shorts? Ah, oh, there's a Canadian for you. Let them take their clothes off and they're happy. Look, an American warship. Oh, yes, a 1918 flush decker. Four four-inch 50-caliber guns, one three-inch 23-caliber anti-aircraft gun. Not very formidable. Don't you find, Mr. Leland, that the United States is inclined to forget that most of the world is at war already with more war to come? Perhaps in the Pacific? Out of it comes, it'll have to do without me. Indeed, Mr. Leland. Now, Salim, you discussed that World War II sort of pushed us into the Pacific Age rather than the European Age, if we want to use those terms rather loosely. What precisely does that mean now, and in terms perhaps of our future? In the larger historical sense, looking at the whole world and, and, and world history, we noted, I noted uh, in your last show, that the Great War was the beginning of the end of the age of Europe. The European age was also the Atlantic age because it was the ch children of Europe that crossed over to North America as settlers. And interestingly enough, World War Two, the Atlantic Age was symbolized by the Atlantic Alliance, the Atlantic Charter that went into the making of the United Nations, you know. But World War II also drew a curtain down, and now that is far more visible to us than it was visible to that generation. It drew the curtain down on the European Age, it drew the curtain down on the Atlantic Age, and the world axis swiveled towards what I would call the Pacific Age. With the end of World War II is the rise of the Pacific powers. It is at first not noticeable, but now it is clearly visible. The arrival of China, 
the rise of the Chinese civilization under the communist power, the unification of China, 1949, the end of Japan but the rise of China, the independence of India, and all of the countries on the Pacific Basin that were part of either the British Empire or the French Empire. Vietnam was French, you know. Thailand was the only independent country. Malaysia was British. Indonesia was Dutch. India and Burma was British. All of these became independent immediately after World War II. And in the last 50 years, they've all come together. The world's largest economy are all on the Pacific Basin. United States, in a sense, is swiveling away from the Atlantic Age to the Pacific Age. You know, it is also a Pacific power. It has a it has a leg in both waters, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. So it is. That's where where the population is, where the demography is. You know, the world's two largest country, China and India, are on the Pacific Basin. Here, the largest economy today is on the Pacific Basin: United States, China. And then is Japan. It's interesting that today we don't seem to be having the problems with Japan that we might have with Europe, especially with all the multiculturalism and the issues involved around that. And yet both nations at the end of World War II were decidedly defeated, not just an armistice, as we discussed earlier. It's almost ironic in a way that we seem to have a smoother relationship with Japan today than we do with Europe. Is there anything to be said about that? Well, there's a lot to be said, but the thread that I might want to pick up here is some way alluding to Robert's remarks about nationalism that is looked at in derogatory terms in Europe, here in Canada, and to a large segment by those intellectuals, people in the media and the academia and others in the United States. But nationalism is not looked derogatory in the Pacific Basin. Japan was unconditionally crushed, defeated. By whom? By a Pacific power. It was a Pacific war. It was a Pacific power. The United States crushed it. And the United States then remained in Japan. Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, became the governor of Japan, in a sense the overlord of Japan, wrote the new constitution of Japan and imposed it upon Japan. And Japan basically shed its own parts in terms of its ideas of the Meiji Revolution that had created modern Japan and became a modern democratic state. Japan became a democracy Mm -hmm. as a result of uh, the American-led Douglas MacArthur's imposition on Japan of a constitution that forbade Japan to militarize. So Japan became an economic power in the 1980s, you know, super Japan, you know. Japan was on a buying spree, if you remember, you know. I mean, look around you. I tell my students, Japan lost the war but won the peace, you know, (laughs) whether you're buying Sony television or, you know, Seiko watch or Honda car, you know, it is Japanese all around. But it is a contribution of the United States. So here's the other point I might draw on. The Europeans... And the white man, and I'm using the white man in the broadest sense, not racially, but the white man, as a result of the Second World War, went into a guilt trip, 
a guilt trip in which they started denigrating their own history, their own history in terms of colonialism, imperialism, racism. All the problems of the world is the problem of the white man, so to speak. So the white man is engaged in self-loathing. And this we can see so pronounced in this whole notion of the white man intellectual, the academics, the media people who have embraced the notion of the United Nations and globalism, you know. But this notion has not been embraced by the Chinese. This notion has not been embraced by the Japanese, by the Indonesians, by the Indians. So you see, it is a peculiar paradoxical situation. I think in the Pacific age, the white men is being relieved of the power, but they will retake back the power once again, once they restore their national pride. So Trump, by the way, hit the nail on his head when he said, I'm a nationalist. He's wanting the Americans to once again take pride in their nation state, America first. The question is whether the rest of Europe will do that. I think it began. It began with Brexit. It began with, you know, Hungary and Italy and others saying no more to migration. More and more people are now in the West waking up to the reality that if we don't have a border, we don't have a country, that means we don't have a nation state. And that fits well into the agenda of the international socialists, who still rear their ugly head many years after Marx has been dead and buried. Well, this, in, the international socialists are not the globalists, you know. Let's name them. People like yes. George Soros, people like... Justin Trudeau. Jeff Bezos. Justin Trudeau said Justin Canada Trudeau. has no culture. It's not There's a no nation culture, state. No identity. They are the ones who are the self-loathing people. You know, Justin Trudeau goes to India and dresses up like a Bollywood cartoon that is insulting to the Indians themselves. Why does he have to dress up in an Indian costume to appeal to the Indians? The Indians are looking up to the West to be a nation-state. The model or the mirror of that is the Western nation-state before it committed suicide. The two world wars were the commission of suicide. And I see we're experiencing a suicide today, too, because people like Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau are bringing in millions, quite literally, millions of people from cultures that are exact opposite of Western society, are unable to assimilate into Western society, namely, of course, our Middle East. And these cultures are the mechanism by which Germany is committing suicide to this day. I, I wrote a book about this, uh, Delectable Lie, yes. the, the repudiation of multiculturalism. This is, again, the ideology of the self-loathing white people because you don't have Chinese and Indians engaging in multiculturalism. India is the most multicultural state, if you go by the definition of multiculturalism, that is a Canadian invention. And yet Indians don't talk about multiculturalism. They talk about being Indians. 
you know. So this, this whole notion of multiculturalism is pouring water into the wine so there's no longer any wine. This is what migration is all about. There would be no problem with migration if they, you say, you people, we're will, willing to let you come in. We want you in. We need labor power in the United States right now under Trump with a full employment rate and an economy that is growing at 4%. There's a shortage of labor. So you can say, yes, we need you, we want you, immigrate. Nobody's immigrating to China, but people are immigrating to the West. But we have our own culture over here, and you've got to assimilate into this culture. You've got to speak English, you know, in, in the case of the United States. But that's not what the multiculturalists are saying. saying all cultures are equal. Well, this begs a question, doesn't it? When I ask, as our final question, have we learned nothing from history since most of the world is still going down the socialist path? We learn from history what we want to learn, <laughs> Bob, because history is manifold. You know? mm. uh, but uh, there are some lessons to be learned. We said the difference between the way the Great War of 1914-18 ended and the, and the Second World War ended, the lesson was taken. There was no armistice. It was an unconditional defeat, unconditional surrender. One of the paradoxes after uh, World War II has been that with the United Nations coming in and trying to arbitrate any of the dispute between nation states, that when there is a war, United Nations has not been able to abolish wars. But what the United Nations had done, they have interfered. And no war has ended conclusively. And so... The war that ends inconclusively only gives further ammunition for future wars. There's another paradox. Those countries that have acquired nuclear weapon out of their own effort have learned the lesson of what was the longest war, what was the Cold War, between the West and the East, Soviet Union and, and, and the Western powers. But the war did not turn hot because of nuclear deterrence. So China and India are two nuclear powers, or India and Pakistan are nuclear powers. And you can see that whatever may be their dysfunctionality in politics, there is a minimum understanding that if they unleash the war, there will be no victors except for the cockroaches. So that's the paradox again. China and India have fought a border war, but that war hasn't gone in a way that it could become a world war, you see. So we, we have paradoxes. We learn what we want to learn. And that's the way history moves forward. Thank you, Salim. And I guess we could also say we can pick up and learn what we want to learn from listening to this show every week where we talk about history and philosophy. Join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be Congratulations, Mr. Douglas. You're now a member of Hooterville's outstanding veteran group, the 4Fs. The 4Fs? The former fighters of foreign fracases. Just for the record, Mr. Douglas, uh, what war are you a veteran of? The Second World War. 
Well, now, I guess we can accept that. I was a flyer. You were shot down. No, no, I wasn't shot down. My motor conked out. Well, whether you were conked or shot, either case I'm very glad. Otherwise, I would have never met you. Oh, you met him during the war? Yes. You see, Mr. Douglas was a flyer. Now, Lisa, they're not interested in how we met. Yes, we are. Well, you see, Mr. Douglas was a Lisa. flyer. And he was flying over enemy territory when they conked him. This is Uncle Henry. Go ahead, Charlie One. My engine caught on. You're hitting yourself. Happy landing, old boy. <laughs> I say, if you do get picked up by the Krauts, demand to be taken to Stalag 13. 13? Yes. Ask for a chap named Ogan. <laughs> Ogan, I'll remember. Charlie One, over and out. 